Hello, ho, ho, and welcome to this special Christmas edition of the Backtracking History Show with me, Alice. And now that the festive season is well and truly underway, I'm going to continue with more traditions and find out the story behind them. When doing research for this particular show, I asked a few people what Christmas traditions they'd like to find out more about. And something that came up quite regularly was Christmas crackers. Well, crackers were first created in 1847 by a sweet maker called Tom Smith, who tried selling sweets around Christmas time with a small motto or riddle, which he sold in a twist of paper. Later on, he decided to add the crackle element after seeing logs crackle on the fire. The paper hats with the appearance of crowns are usually worn when eating Christmas dinner. The tradition of wearing festive hats is believed to date back to Roman times and the Saturnalia celebrations, which also involved decorative headgear. By 1900, the company were producing 13 million crackers a year, and over the next few years, his idea evolved and grew, and he moved from his original premises in Clerkenwell, East London, to Finsbury Square in the city. Tom left his business to his three sons, Tom, Henry and Walter. In 1953, the firm merged with Cayley Crackers and moved out to Norwich. Tom Smith died at his home at 320 City Road, aged 46, in 1869 from stomach cancer and is buried in Highgate Cemetery in London. Near where he used to live in Finsbury Square, there's a memorial water fountain to Tom Smith and his family. The Tom Smith brand is the official supplier and royal warrant holder of Christmas crackers to the royal household, a tradition which started with the then Prince of Wales in 1909. Here's a little Christmas cracker fact for you. The longest Christmas cracker pulling chain consisted of 1,081 people and was achieved by the Herodian School in London on the 10th of December 2015. On the 17th of August 2020, while filming a Christmas episode for the television series QI, British comedian Alan Davis set a Guinness World Record for the most crackers pulled by an individual in 30 seconds. He achieved 35 successful cracks, outscoring his fellow panellists Justin Morehouse by five in a head-to-head competition. In most cases, the gift you get in the Christmas cracker isn't very good. In fact, the other day, I managed to win one hairband. But that isn't always the case. Back in 2017, the luxury site Very First Two sold crackers where a lucky winner can get a white gold Cartier necklace set with 20 diamonds. Other gifts included a Faber-Castell limited edition pen of the year worth 6,500, a luxury trip around the world worth 77,500, as well as the possibility of winning a top of the range 190,000 Aston Martin Vanquish Coupe. Now I hear you ask yourselves, 
how much would these particular crackers have set you back? I can reveal that it was just over four million pounds. But don't you worry, it isn't all decadence and materialism, as for each set of crackers purchased, a donation of £1,000 was made to the Prince's Trust. Bless! Word of the Week Especially for the festive season, I give you... Bull Week, which is an old Yorkshire dialect name for the week before Christmas. In the 1800s, workers in Sheffield's cutlery factories were apparently rewarded with a whole roast bull if they could finish all the extra pre-Christmas work in time for Christmas Day. What do you call Santa living at the South Pole? A lost clause. If, like me, you've ever wondered about the Yule Log and where that tradition came from, Here's your answer. Every Christmas Eve, the men of the house would drag back the largest log they could find in the woods to burn on the hearth, lighting it, if at all possible, with a piece of last year's log. This was called the Yule Log, or Yule Clog, or Christmas Block. The idea was to keep it burning throughout Christmas Day and was probably a remnant from the Viking traditions of old, when a piece of wood was burnt in honour of Ysidril, the world tree as harbinger of a good fortune. Henry Bourne, an English historian who was born in 1694 and is remembered for his Antiquities Vulgaris, a pioneering work in the field of folklore studies, as well as his substantial history of his hometown of Newcastle on Tyne, searched for the origin of the Eulog in Anglo-Saxon paganism. Our forefathers when the common devices of Eve were over and night was come on, were wont to light up candles of an uncommon size, which were called Christmas candles, and to lay a log of wood upon the fire, which they termed a Yule clog or Christmas block. These were to illuminate the house and turn the night into day, which custom, in some measure, is still kept up in the northern parts. It hath, in all probability, been derived from the Saxons. For Bede tells us that this very night was observed in this land before. In Cornwall, in the UK, the log is called the mock. The log is dried out and then the bark is taken off it before it comes into the house to be burned. Also in the UK, barrel makers, or coopers as barrel makers were traditionally called, gave their customers old logs that they could not use for making barrels to be turned into Yule logs. The custom of the Yule logs spread all over Europe and different kinds of wood are used in different countries. In England, oak is traditional. In Scotland, it's birch, while in France, it's cherry. And in France, they also sprinkle the log with wine before it's burnt, so it smells nice. In Devon and Somerset in England, some people have a very large bunch of ash twigs instead of a log. This comes from the local legend that Joseph, Mary and Jesus were very cold when the shepherds found them on Christmas night, and so the shepherds collected bunches of twigs to burn and keep them warm. How does Darth Vader enjoy his Christmas turkey?
on the dark side. It's time to get your walking boots on as we go for a big stroll. Big Bristol to London stroll. Hello and welcome to the Big Bristol to London stroll, where we take you along the scenic routes via canals on a gentle walk to our capital. Along the way, we'll discuss the places we see and anything we spot that takes our fancy. Sometimes we're even joined along the way by family and friends. So come join us as we take the big stroll. I'm not going to lie to you, recently the weather has been rubbish, but we've been lucky today, and as we stroll further down the Thames, we came across Chertsey. Now, Chertsey contains the museum for the area, so if you want to find out more about Runnymede, then this is the place. It also houses a rather impressive costume exhibition entitled Blooming Marvellous, Flowers in Fashion from 1700 to 2000. This ends on the 3rd of September 2022, so you have plenty of time to check out the wonderful outfits on display. We followed the towpath around until we got to Shepperton Lock, a lovely spot with a tea room and plenty of space for us to rest our weary limbs. But I got a little bit overexcited when I found the place that they filmed the video for Coach Club's Karma Chameleon. It's at this point where you can follow the Wiggly Thames or take a more direct route on the Desborough Cut. I'm not going to lie to you, we took the direct route, but it still got us to our destination for the end of the day of Walton-on-Thames. This delightful town of Celtic origins appeared in the Doomsday Book as Weltona, and if you pop into the 12th century St Mary's Parish Church, you'll find an unusual relic, which is a copy of a school's bridal presented to the parish in the 17th century which is mentioned in Jerome K. Jerome's classic, Three Men in a Boat. During World War I, troops from New Zealand were hospitalised in the number two New Zealand General Hospital at Mount Felix House, which is sadly demolished except for the stable block and clock tower. They are remembered by a memorial in the cemetery where those who died at Mount Felix are buried, and one in St Mary's Church where an annual service of remembrance is held. They are also remembered in the street name New Zealand Avenue, the Wellington Pub, formerly the Kiwi, and a small memorial in the home base car park. And in more recent history, Hersham and Walton Motors constructed its own racing car in the early 1950s. Sterling Moss competed in his first Formula One Grand Prix in a Hersham and Walton Motors car. Hersham and Walton Motors was the world's first Aston Martin dealership that diversified into Alfa Romeo in 2009. And now we're moving on to another tradition the Christmas card. Did you know the first known Christmas card was sent by Michael Mayer to James I of England and his son Henry Frederick, Prince of Wales, in 1611? It was discovered in 1979 by Adam McLean in the Scottish Record Office. It was handmade with the words of greeting A greeting on the birthday of the sacred king, 
to the most worshipful and energetic Lord and most eminent James, King of Great Britain and Ireland and defender of the true faith, with a gesture of joyful celebration of the birthday of the Lord in most joy and fortune, we enter into the new auspicious year 1612. This was written out in such a way that it made the form of a rose. The custom of sending Christmas cards as we know them today was started in the UK in 1843 by Sir Henry Cole and designed by John Colcott Horsley. The hand-coloured card was lithographed on stiff, dark cardboard with the message, A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. In the first one they did, they had a central picture which showed three generations of a family raising a toast to the card's recipient. On either side were scenes of charity, with food and clothing being given to the poor. Allegedly, the image of the family drinking wine together proved controversial, but the idea was shrewd. Cole had helped introduce the Penny Post three years earlier. Two batches, totalling 2,050 cards, were printed and sold that year for a shilling each. It's one of these Christmas cards that holds the world record as the most expensive ever sold. The card was one of the world's first and was sold in 2001 by UK auctioner's Henry Aldridge to an anonymous bidder for a record-breaking £22,250. Before mass production, Christmas cards were originally penned in England by boys who were practising their writing skills. They would present these handmade cards to their parents. Postmen in Victorian England were called Robins because their uniforms were red. Many Christmas cards from that time depicted a Robin delivering Christmas mail. Sir Henry Cole was a senior civil servant, a government worker, who had helped set up the new Public Record Office, which we now call the Post Office, where he was an assistant keeper. And his idea of a Christmas card was to encourage more ordinary people to use the new postal system. And now it's estimated that 900 million Christmas cards are sent in Britain every year. That means that people in Britain send on average about 16 cards each. Now more about Christmas cards. The now widely recognised brand Hallmark Cards was established in 1913 by Joyce Hall with the help of her brother Rolly Hall to market their self-produced Christmas cards. The Halls capitalised on a growing desire for more personalised greeting cards and reached critical success when the outbreak of World War I increased demands for cards to be sent to the soldiers. The World Wars brought cards with patriotic themes, distinctive studio cards with cartoon illustrations and sometimes risque humour caught on in the 1950s. And here's a little story I like. In 2004, the German post office gave away 20 million free scented stickers to make Christmas cards smell a fir Christmas tree cinnamon, gingerbread, a honey wax candle, a baked apple and an orange. How will Christmas dinner be different after Brexit? There'll be no Brussels.
And lastly, we're going to talk about the Advent calendar. The word Advent comes from the Latin phrase coming toward. For Christians, the period of Advent marks coming toward the most important date in their year, the birth of Christ. The idea of physically marking Advent has its roots in late 19th century Germany, when the Lutherans made chalk marks on doors from December the 1st until the 24th. There were two contenders for the very first Advent calendars. According to the Lorns Museum in Austria, the first one was produced in Hamburg in 1902 by a Protestant bookshop owner. Others claim that the first handmade calendar was made in Germany in the late 19th century for a child named Gerhard Lang. Lang's mother stuck 24 tiny sweets to a square of cardboard for her son to eat over the Advent period. This simple idea stayed with Lang, and when, as an adult, he went into partnership with his friend Reichhold, they opened a printing office. In 1908, they produced what is thought to be the first ever printed Advent calendar. This earliest calendar set the mould for those we see today, with small pictures, one marking every day between the 1st and 24th of December. A few years later, Lang introduced the concept of 24 little doors, giving each new picture an element of surprise. Back in the day facts. And let's start off with the 18th of December 1917, when the 18th Amendment to the US Constitution authorising prohibition of alcohol is approved by the US Congress and sent to the states for ratification. On the 19th of December 1843, a Christmas carol by Charles Dickens is published and 6,000 copies are sold. On the 20th of December, 1957, Elvis Presley receives his draft notice to join the US Army and National Service. I got those up, two, three, four, occupation GI Blues. From my GI head to the heels of my GI shoes. And if I don't go stateside soon, Elvis served from March 1958 to March 1960. Despite being offered the chance to enlist in special services to entertain the troops and live in priority housing, Elvis was persuaded by his manager to serve as a regular soldier. This earned him the respect of many of his fellow soldiers, as well as people back home who previously had viewed him in a negative light. During his service, Presley's life was affected in many ways, beginning with the death of his mother. Not long before he was to be stationed in Germany, Gladys Presley died of a heart attack, brought on by acute hepatitis and cirrhosis at the age of only 46. Whilst he was stationed in West Germany, he met his future wife Priscilla and became dependent on stimulants and barbiturates. This unhealthy addiction eventually led to his divorce an untimely death at the age of 42 in 1977. On the 21st of December, 1898, scientists Pierre and Marie Curie discover radium. 
and polonium, which they named after Marie's native Poland. On the results of this research, she was awarded her Doctorate of Science in June 1903, and later in the year shared the Nobel Prize in Physics with her husband. Marie Curie was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize. On April 19th, 1906, Pierre Curie was killed in an accident in the Paris streets. Marie Curie, though, passed away in 1934 from leukaemia, caused by four decades of exposure to radioactive substances. On the 22nd of December, 1885, Ito Hirobumi, a samurai, becomes the first Prime Minister of Japan. And on the 23rd of December, 1888, Vincent van Gogh cuts off his left ear with a razor after an argument with fellow painter Paul Gauguin and sends it to a prostitute for safekeeping. Who is Santa's favourite singer? Elphis Presley. I'm Dr Helen and I'm a GP. It's great that life's getting back to normal, but Covid still hasn't gone away. And we all know that catching it can be serious. If not for you, then for someone else. So if you're feeling under the weather or you can't taste or smell your food, or you have a cough that won't stop, please don't ignore it. Don't wait, don't guess, get a test today. Order one online at nhs.uk forward slash get tested, or use the NHS COVID-19 app. Well, that's it for today's Christmas show. All there is left for me to say is, wishing you a wonderful Christmas. The next episode is all about the history of Christmas cards. And then after that, there'll be a two-week break before we start again with new shows in 2022. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com, where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at Backtracker UK the capital B, a capital T and a capital UK or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk So until next time guys take care and look after each other <laughs>